0: Hello, and welcome to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This is the fifth episode of Lent Term 2019 in our series of brief conversations with academics who come to present at our weekly seminar. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Janine Kinney, and I'm a PhD student at Sydney Sussex College here at the University of Cambridge, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Kate Maser, who is Associate Professor of History and African American Studies at Northwestern University. Professor Maser's research focuses on the history of the 19th century United States, specifically in relation to questions of race and equality after the abolition of slavery in both the North and the South. Her first book, An Example for All the Land, Emancipation and the Struggle Over Equality in Washington, D.C., was published in 2010 by the University of North Carolina Press and focused on the battle over racial equality during Reconstruction in America's capital city. Professor Maser has co-edited two volumes on the Civil War and Emancipation, Freedom, a Documentary History of Emancipation, and The World the Civil War Made, both published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2013 and 2015. Professor Maser has written multiple articles on race, equality, and emancipation, including for the Journal of American History, the American Journal of Legal History, Civil War History, and in David Blight and Jim Down's edited volume, Beyond Freedom, Disrupting the History of Emancipation. Additionally, she edited and wrote the in- introduction to the reprint of John E. Washington's 1942 book, They New Lincoln, published by um, Oxford University Press last year. She worked with the National Park Service on the public history of reconstruction, and she's currently an OHA Distinguished Lect- Lecturer, as well as um, a endo- National Endowment for the Humanities Faculty Fellow. Professor Masur, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, it's really good to be here. So today we're going to talk a bit about your paper as well as about your wider research and your experiences as an historian. Um, Your paper is titled State Sovereignty and Migration Before Reconstruction. And first of all, can you maybe give a brief synopsis of this paper? Um, Well, this paper is um, a freestanding
1: article rather than a chapter of a book. I I wrote it to be part of a special issue um, that the Journal of the Civil War era is doing and the special issues about federalism. And so I wanted to take the opportunity of the special issue to try to write about and think through some things I'm dealing with in my book, but in a different format in a journal article. and so the, the overall picture of the article is about a variety of ways that, um, or actually a particular way, that Americans thought about state sovereignty in the decades before the Civil War. And it focuses on questions of immigration and migration, um, both people coming into states from outside the United States and then people traveling across state lines within the United States. And what I'm trying to do is capture a version of arguments about state sovereignty that are, are different from what are more familiar particularly to historians of the Civil War period, which are kind of Southern arguments for states' rights, which are very caught up in um, the argument over slavery and the extension of slavery, and the kind of famous arguments that Southern white Southerners made about um, the independence of the states, the, the notion that states could become independent from the Union or that they preceded the Union, um, the idea that state sovereignty was like inviolable by the federal government because of slavery. Um, those are pretty familiar arguments to a lot of historians, particularly uh, Civil War-type historians. Um, and what's less familiar, but what uh, people have been doing very interesting work on recently, are as the um, history of arguments for state sovereignty related to immigration and migration. And um, that has yielded some really good, cool work by immigration historians, um, and But what hasn't really been done, except to some extent by a historian named Kunal Parker, who's really wonderful, um, is really trying to think about the relationship between those immigration-related laws and laws that restricted the mobility of African Americans in um, the antebellum period, which ultimately is what I'm most interested in. I'm kind of most interested in the end in racist laws, laws that were ex- explicitly racially discriminatory. But what I'm exploring and um, really interested in is the ways that all of these laws that restricted people's mobility across state lines were kind of built on top of this English poor law tradition. And so um, the paper deals a lot with kind of the ways that people compared immigrants from abroad and free black people to paupers and vagrants and criminals. Um, And that was not just a kind of way of being culturally degrading or kind of suggesting that those groups of people didn't, weren't very, didn't have a lot of rights, but it was also a very specific legal argument for why it was okay to restrict their free mobility, um, because there was this long history of being able to restrict the mobility of people who were considered um, the, the sort of migrant poor paupers. So um, that's what's kind of going on in the article, and trying to recapture that world and those arguments about states' right to regulate um, the migration and settlement of people into the states is in My goal, in a way, although it's not really captured in this article, is to set up or better understand the antebellum period so that we can better understand what the
0: Reconstruction
1: Amendments really did. So that's the ultimate payoff, um, but that comes later.
0: So as you said, the concept of poor laws um, has a very central role in this paper, um, and you argue that poor law that the poor law tradition quote opened the way for extensive regulation of migration at the state level and to discrimination based on race, religion, and culture. So maybe can you talk a bit about what exactly were these poor laws and how did they regulate migration and accommodate discrimination? Sure. Um well, so the poor law tradition, and this is something
1: that I had to kind of learn my learn myself building on the work of tons and tons of historians of England and of the earlier United States. Um, but basically, there's a tradition that goes back to England, and that's obviously relevant for the U.S. because it was English people who became the white settlers of the United States and founded the laws, at least in the eastern part of the U.S., Um there are a couple of main principles of the poor law tradition, and one is that um, poor relief, so there's going to be poor people. And so poor relief happens locally at the in the United States case, like the county level, or in England at the parish level, um, that the idea that people would be taxed to support a poor relief fund, which would then be distributed to needy people. Um, the idea that if you were a settled member of a community, who came on tough times or were poor, that you were entitled to some form of relief from that poor fund. Um, but that if you were not a settled member of the community, if you were a migrant and you were needy and poor, um, you were not entitled to that poor relief fund, you might get some at the discretion of local officials, but you could also be removed from the community. You could certainly be sent back to your original place of settlement. Um, and so it was a system that set up a kind of mechanism for local poor relief where you would raise taxes, you would distribute the funds, but not everyone was equal, and not everyone who needed the funds was equally entitled to the funds. And strangers, poor, impoverished sort of migrant strangers, had a particularly like marginalized relationship to this. And they really didn't have, Uh, you know, the kind of right, and I'm using my uh, scare quotes with my fingers, like the the right to stay, they really could just readily be removed from a place if they were not, if they didn't have a legal settlement. And just as a a side note, this operated in particularly gendered ways as well. So um, women, when they married, their place of settlement became that of their husband. And this would be complicated, for example, if like a husband deserted a wife, and she was still in the community, but she actually didn't have a settlement there because or she no longer had a settlement there because her husband, she had become settled there by virtue of her husband, so she would have to actually be removed to her original place of settlement, probably her father's um, residence. And so there were kind of aspects of this that related to gender and to um, class status, obviously. And so um, this was a system of dealing with kind of poverty and undesirable groups that, that British colonists brought to the United States and inscribed in colonial laws at the, at the kind of level of the colonies. Um, and I guess the other thing I should say is that all of that world of poor law regulation came to exist under the umbrella of what people called at the time the police power. and the, And the police powers of the states were kind of generally the idea that part of state sovereignty and part of what states could still do, even if they were part of the United States government, was take care of their own um, domestic affairs within the state. And so states, so another valence of this besides poverty was also disease. So like, it's also the idea that they could quarantine people coming in, they could say, we don't want sick people coming into our um, into our jurisdiction and, and the the sort of discourse about disease and the discourse about poverty were not, were separate, but at the same time, not totally separate. So they all fell under the rubric of like, what we're trying to do is create a kind of healthy, peaceful, self-sustaining community where outside threats are kind of dealt with and monitored. And part of an outside threat could be poor people who come in and and need to take advantage of public resources and we're not giving them to them because we have to save those for our poor people. So all of that is how, sorry, so that is kind of the poor law tradition that becomes the foundation for American state-level laws about immigration and settlement.
0: Yeah, because that was going to be my next question. You also tie this poor law tradition to these legal battles at the state level over state sovereignty. Right. And how do you think they interact? Um,
1: Well, so... So if you imagine that, like, really what the United States was, I mean, this is not how it was, but if you imagine that all it was was a collection of states, then, and each state would be like a mini, you know, nation state. And so um, they would, you know, fight it out over immigration at the border between, let's say, you know, uh, Virginia and Ohio. There would be, they would have to have their own immigration policies on each side of the border and so on. But in reality, that's not how it was because there was a federation of the states and there was a United States Constitution. And so, you know, part of, if you're interested in this kind of thing, like part of what's fascinating about American history is this ongoing kind of attempt to figure out what is the realm of the federal government and what remains the realm of the states. It's still a really controversial question. Um, and so sometimes states would think that the state governments, legislatures would think they're entirely within their rights to try to... Uh, slow down immigration, put a lot of restrictions on immigration because they didn't want more Im- very many more immigrants coming in. And sometimes people would then challenge those laws in federal court, in state court maybe, but more likely in federal court, they would be more likely to succeed, it, by saying the only way to really get the laws overturned for the most part was to say they violated the Constitution. And so you see, so wh- this is one of the things the paper does, is like it looking at times that people challenged state level immigration and settlement laws by arguing that they were unconstitutional and thereby being able to have a federal case, a case in federal court, um, you get to see a lot of the ways that contemporary people defended state sovereignty because they go to court and they say, here's why we're, we should be allowed to pass these kind of laws. And so it's at those um, moments, I'm less interested, I use um, three main Supreme Court cases in this paper, but I'm less interested in a way in the court itself than in the arguments that the states mobilized to defend their laws.
0: That's so interesting. And you, your paper, by focusing on these court cases that are mostly focused on northern states, also seems to challenge the public historical perception that states' rights principles or state sovereignty principles were mostly advocated by the southern states in the antebellum period. Um, because as you discussed, northern states frequently defended state sovereignty in the courts, and southern states frequently abandoned it in favor of federal fugitive slave laws. Um, can you talk a bit more about this? Why why did this reversal of positions between the north and the south take place and is it even useful to think about it as a reversal at all? Right? I mean, I think it's less useful to think about it as a reversal and I think that's it's one of the
1: it's sort of a trope in in the way people talk about American history is to sort of say, and this comes up a lot, like let's say when you teach about the coming of the Civil War or something, it's like, well, and we can all see what hypocrites the, you know, Southern political leaders were because they were always talking about states' rights, but when they could get the federal government to do what they wanted, like pass a fugitive slave law or enforce the Fugitive Slave Act, um, they were really happy to see a very strong federal state. So it was basically political opportunism, and people sometimes say that, less so, but about Northern defenses of personal liberty laws, that it was just Nobody so so in that world like nobody really believes in states' rights or a lack of or a kind of broader federal power and everyone is just grabbing onto those arguments opportunistically when they will serve whatever their purposes are politically or as in terms of sections of the United States or whatever. Um, and I'm trying to show in this paper that there's more meat than it. Today. It's not simply people grabbing on it opportunistically. White Southerners did not have a monopoly on believing that states had important kinds of sovereignty, Um, and also people pretty consistently maintain these defenses of state sovereignty across a bunch of different issues, Um, which isn't to say, and I don't want to be like misconstrued, I do think that a different, very radical version of state sovereignty emerged in the South and it was, you know, kind of Southern, the radical right in the South basically that ended up saying, you know, that the states preceded the Union, that the states could break the compact, Um, and that is a distinctly Southern perspective. I'm not arguing that Northerners subscribe to that at all, Um, but what I am saying is that we really need to think about the investment, the significant investment that a a lot of Americans had across sections in these ideas about state sovereignty.
0: You also argue in this paper that while um, immigrants and free African Americans were frequently grouped in the same category under the state poor laws that we just discussed, um, that the racist laws restricting migration and settlement of free African Americans proved actually far more difficult to challenge in federal court than laws directed at immigrants. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why this was?
1: Yeah, I. It's a that's a tough question, and I, um, I, I. It's been interesting to me to try to sort it out because. Um, the Commerce Clause of the Constitution says that Congress has power over international and interstate commerce and commerce with Indian nations. Um, and so the main litigation is around international commerce and the question of whether immigration is a form of international commerce and therefore is only regulatable by Congress. And then the question of domestic, congr- domestic commerce is much less litigated Um, And and some of the ways that it is, it's really clear that part of what people are concerned about is the domestic slave trade, so that if they get in the business of saying that um, Congress has some form of jurisdiction, especially exclusive jurisdiction over the domestic slave trade, that they might end up with a Congress that would ban the domestic slave trade. And so for people who wanted slavery to be able to continue or didn't want to rock the boat about slavery, um, they would have wanted to stay away from that issue. The other thing that's interesting is that uh, most of the time when people brought these big lawsuits about um, fighting the state's immigration laws, it was ship captains who brought them in the name of commerce in the name of being able to kind of import immigrants more readily and more cheaply. Whereas if you think about African-Americans migrating across straight lines, like for example, free black people migrating from, you know, Virginia into Ohio or people running away from slavery who make it into free territory, they don't have powerful advocates who are going to go to court and make a commerce-related argument on their behalf. Um... So I think there are a lot of different reasons, but there's not, the thing that's interesting to me is there's not a constitutional reason. Like, they could have, they could have made the argument that, um, that, they could maybe have made the argument that um, making it more difficult for African Americans to come into states that had these racist laws violated the Commerce Clause, and they could have also made the argument, which people often made the argument, but not in federal court, that it violated the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Constitution. Um, so it's not like you couldn't have had those arguments made in federal court, but the courts also were wouldn't have wanted to take such a case. And so it's interesting. As far as I know, um, what that ends up meaning is that the first very um, – visible ruling on the question of whether these state the federal court ruling on the question of whether these racist state laws are constitutional was the dred scott decision so not until 1857 and of course uh, justice Taney says they were constitute they were there's nothing wrong with them they're perfectly fine
0: So you talked a bit about how this paper relates to your book project as well, Mm. but um, maybe you can talk a bit more about it. How does it fit in with your current research? Um, Are you trying to do different things in the book than you were trying to do in this paper?
1: Yeah, I mean, this article was, um, I was using this article in a way to try to think through ways of writing about the the, the relationship between how we think about the police powers of the states and then within that the poor law tradition and then trying to sort out what it meant that across the board and the cases I talk about are New York v Milne, um, the passenger cases and Prague versus Pennsylvania. Why was it that if you read those cases and you read the multiple opinions of multiple justices, they often are resorting to poor law language in order to make the argument about the acceptability of state-level regulation. So I wanted to be able to write about that because I don't think that people have appreciated that before. Um, and in some ways, it's it's kind of, it's like a think piece for me. Um, the larger book project is about the northern origins of reconstruction policy and particularly the 14th amendment so what the book is really doing is talking about a variety of different struggles over the rights of free black people in largely in the antebellum north from um, the beginning of the 19th century through the 1850s but then it goes I, I sort of write about the ways that lessons that um, activists and politicians learned through those arguments about rights of free african americans before the war informed reconstruction policy and um so hopefully it's like a longer and slightly novel uh vision of um how we understand reconstruction both its real um accomplishments and novelty but also its limitations so
0: what is a book that you've read or an article that you've read maybe in researching uh, your current book project in the last 12 months that really inspired you or really challenged you? Does anything come to mind? I mean, this is a really hard question because I
1: feel like I've been learning all of this stuff in new, entirely new fields. And so like recently I was writing about the Missouri Compromise and I was like reading all these books about the Missouri Compromise and um, so I, I feel like I'm actually just consuming a huge amount of history in a variety of areas of U.S. history that I don't know that well. Um, it's hard for me to single out any one um, book or article and it's more just that I've spent so much time over my career writing about and thinking about the Civil War and Reconstruction. I know embarrassingly little, actually, about uh, what happened before those things. Um, probably shouldn't admit that, but anyway, I mean we all have our limits to what we know, and so I've just really, um, I also have become obsessed with the history of Ohio, so um, I've learned <laughs> a remarkable amount about the history <laughs> of Ohio, including Af- the history of African Americans in Ohio, and I'm totally fascinated by
0: it. <laughs> So in terms of maybe more primary research or any, actually any type of research, what is the most interesting place you've been for research? Was it in Ohio or was it yeah, somewhere well, else? Yeah,
1: well, I mean, I've been to Cleveland and Columbus both in the last year, and no, in the last two years um, for research. And I I am a native Midwesterner. I'm from the Chicago area, and I'm having a lot of fun writing about the Midwest. Um, and one of my, I think this, I think a lot of people in the field of sort of the study of the anti-slavery movement would probably agree with this. And I certainly bet what I'm about to say is, to this day, the Midwestern side of the anti-slavery movement is totally underappreciated. And it's really interesting because, um, and I'm kind of curious about like why that is. And I I mean, there's certainly some books on Midwestern anti-slavery that have come out that have said, we need more about this, so I'm writing a book about it, right? Um, but even so, I think we don't fully appreciate kind of the novelty and interestingness of what was going on, particularly in Ohio, which was settled um, by you know white people and black people before in greater density, um, before the other states that came out of the Northwest Territory, and so their legal regime kind of set the stage for the rest of the Midwest. Um, so anyway, I did research in Columbus, Ohio, and Cleveland, Ohio, and. was just really fascinating. I mean, one thing that I'm really interested in, as you can probably imagine from how I'm talking about my work, is the activities of state legislatures. Mm -hmm. And um, it's very cool that Google Books has um, digitized some of the published proceedings of state legislatures, but they haven't digitized Ohio. So one of the things I looked at in Columbus was the proceedings of the Ohio State Legislature starting in the 18-teens. And it was just Amazing to me how much time is spent talking about free African-Americans like you would think from a lot of work that this wasn't really on anyone's radar and that the anti-slavery movement, what they really were involved in was trying to get the abolition of slavery, which didn't exist in Ohio. So obviously that was a, a national project. Um, But man, they cared so much about what was going on in Ohio, and they wanted those laws to be repealed. And African Americans were organizing to repeal the laws, and African Americans were organizing to get access to public schools. um, And they were petitioning the state legislature. Unfortunately, none of the actual petitions have survived that I'm aware of because an archivist told me there was a fire in the archive in, I think, the end of the 19th century. But you can see in the proceedings of the legislature... Um, you know, so-and-so introduced a petition from the citizens of this county for X, right? So you can just sort of see the, the residual um, record of the existence of those
0: petitions. So I've had a lot of fun getting to know Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, as is always our last question, mm-hmm. what is your favorite album?
1: Okay, you. S- <laughs> so full disclosure, right? I got the questions in advance. I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm such a boring music person. But the truth is, right now, I am obsessed with Jesus Christ Superstar, (laughs) and I, for some reason, missed that, like in the 70s. Um, (laughs) I was a little kid in the 70s, and a couple years ago, our local high school did a production of Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical, and we went, and it was amazing, and I didn't know the music and um my husband was like singing along and um I and then we it just so happened that there was a big production of it in Chicago so we saw a professional production of it and I just think it's fascinating I love it's kind of this 70s rock opera style thing it's totally 70s kind of music (laughs) and it's all about you know one of the greatest stories ever the story of Jesus but from this very like hippie and kind of out there perspective so Believe it or not, I can totally listen to it while I'm working also. That's a really great answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Professor Mace, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a delight talking to you. Well, thank you for having me. I look forward to our seminar.